0: Coming to you from a cozy little condo High atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta Welcome Welcome to The Ron Show On America One Radio Here's your host Ron Roberts. Thank you for joining us. A breaking story coming out of Grady Hospital, another Fulton County jail inmate dying at Grady just a few days after being found responsive. We'll get to that story in just a little bit. First, I have Alex Joseph with me, former state and federal prosecutor, also one of the many volunteers who've been efforting getting folks to sign the petition to put a referendum on the ballot to decide whether or not the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility will be built. Alex, thanks for joining us. Yesterday, we had uh, the 61-count RICO indictment drop, uh, Attorney General Chris Carr dropping those indictments. And I'm pretty sure I know where you're going to sit with this, but I'm seeing a lot of folks who've gone through the 110-page indictment and coming away a bit underwhelmed with, uh, of all things, facts, um, even some of the the way uh, the indictments are written and a uh, sophomoric sort of way. What are your thoughts?
1: Right. I mean, I think that this indictment, more than any other document we've seen associated with the Stop Cop City movement, like a legal document, this is clearly a political document. This is a document that Chris Carr wants to use because he wants to run for governor. Mm. So he is clearly less concerned with the evidence he has to build his case than he is with talking about Black Lives Matter, talking about anarchists, talking about um, collective action. And this is really meant to be read and digested by people living across the state who are already inclined to vote for Chris Carr, mm-hmm. but now seem as someone that's taking da- down these like big, dirty, hippie terrorist organization.
0: And on that note, the, the mention of the date, May 25th, 2020, there's a lot of speculation as to why that date is is utilized so heavily uh, as, a, as a starting point when Cop City wasn't even a known entity at that point in time. I mean, can we draw an inference there that's pretty clear?
1: Um, I think that that's just one of the sort of inconsistencies in the indictment. He also mentions that the training facility is owned by the Atlanta Police Foundation. But of course, we know it's owned by the city of Atlanta and was leased. Um, I just think that he is, in fact, stretching. Uh, The indictment does not contain a lot of truth or a lot of evidence, Um, but it is typical of a RICO indictment because the nature of RICO is you're casting a really wide net and you're just sort of seeing what you can catch.
0: So let's talk about some of the indictments. Uh, There are folks who are, are they being hyperbolic when they talk about the completely legal acts that folks were doing? Uh, in the realm of activism that now seem to be targeted for criminalizing?
1: Right. So how RICO works or any sort of large-scale conspiracy charges is RICO was invented to take down complex criminal enterprises. Think the mob, think a drug cartel, organizations like that that maybe exist in multiple countries that are moving millions of dollars and the idea is that maybe you're not the kingpin but because you're involved you sort of are assisting this criminal organization from existing and functioning so here we have a spectrum of alleged conduct all the way from uh you know vandalism and arson so sort of more severe property crimes are alleged and then we have money laundering where we get to the bail fund folks who were arrested Mm -hmm. um, and you know it's alleged that they're sort of funding this organization and more than the individual acts that are alleged what you have to look at is the picture they're painting they're going to say it's not about the individuals it's not about the specific acts it is that this was a terrorist organization and that is going to sell outside of Metro Atlanta, where the people are not familiar with the facts on the ground. But here in Metro Atlanta, we know that this was a handful of dirty kids, either mm. living in the forest or attending a music festival. Um, we know that this was some like very low level petty property damage. Um, people were arrested for distributing flyers. I mean, these are the types of actions that one do not amount to terrorism, but two, these are not the acts of a complex, uh, sophisticated criminal enterprise. And when you look specifically at the people arrested as part of the bail fund, they're moving like a few thousand dollars. I think in total, they're alleged to have a misappropriated $10,000. And when you look at their receipts, you know, they're reimbursing people for tote bags, for COVID tests, for Uber rides, mm. all the sorts of expenses you would expect to see from a bail fund
0: and that being said listen the general public we all saw burned police vehicles we all saw vandalism uh, in the streets of downtown atlanta as a result of protests i mean it's it's kind of hard not to say well we do see evidence of some sort of violent activity so we're just going to lump it all in together is that kind of what it, 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 is, a com- is is that helping to accomplish that goal for the attorney general and those who are kind of portraying the stop cop city movement as just being a terrorist organization
1: right i mean the the Chris Carr, the attorney general, I almost called him Governor Carr. Chris Carr wants to run for governor. Right. And he has two real options here. And what I want to make clear for your listeners is he could have charged these people with crimes like arson or possession of stolen property, sort of like a collection of random charges, or he could have done what he did, which is choose to go after a RICO indictment, this huge 100-page indictment where he is selling a story. And that story is that this is a complex, sophisticated terrorist organization. And the evidence doesn't support that, but a little bit in order to win here, All Chris Carr needs to do is have a few of the people that he's indicted, and he's indicted over 60, a few of the people he indicted plead guilty to a terrorist charge, and then gets to point to them, and he calls them terrorists. Mm. And I believe, unfortunately, even though the evidence isn't there, he is going to get to do that. He is going to win, because right now, the hammer of the state is coming down on all of these people, and we know that the state almost always wins.
0: What can we read from the fact that it it appears that these indictments stem from the same grand jury that levied indictments against former President Donald Trump?
1: I think that we the thing that we can really confer or the really um understand is that RICO is becoming a political tool in this country for better or worse. And I think that Chris Carr has really weakened Fonnie Willis's case against former President Donald Trump because that case, which may have evidence, which may carry water, maybe President Trump does in fact deserve to go to prison for what he did, which is attempting to interfere in an election, is now significantly weakened by the fact that Chris Carr has shown one, how politically motivated these types of charges can be, two, how weak RICO is as a tool, because again, it casts a really wide net and a little bit, you know, catches big fish and small fish. Wow. And then also, you are gonna see Democrats and progressive people in Georgia, people that would have perhaps supported Fannie Willis and her attempt to pursue criminal charges against Trump, you're gonna see them come out against RICO as a tool, maybe more so than they were before because of how it's being used as a hammer in this case. And so I do think that this is sort of dueling ideologies, Democrats versus Republicans um, happening right here in Georgia. And they're both sort of using RICO as the, you know, playground or as the stage for larger political battles.
0: See, I find that pretty interesting uh, myself. And we're speaking with a former state federal prosecutor, Alex Joseph, joining us on the Ron show to talk about the uh, cop city RICO indictments that came down yesterday the use of RICO by Fonnie Willis uh, against uh, local drug gangs, uh, gang gang culture in in general in the city of Atlanta, had one effect, and then turning RICO and using it for Donald Trump sort of, temp, you know, sort of uh, you know tempered the the anger on the use of RICO with the, the 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 folks on the left, and now you've got the use of RICO by Attorney General Chris Carr, the same grand jury even to now come back and go after what folks will call, you know, extreme leftists or radicals or terrorists. I, 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 I just, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, It's, it's sort of an an odd batch of misdirection uh, on his part. And I never really thought about that before, but how it could impact Fonnie Willis's case against Donald Trump.
1: Right. It's sort of shown through a really vivid example one, the weaknesses of RICO, which is that inevitably, because it's sort of this imprecise tool, some of the people being charged are going to be completely innocent, um, completely removed. That's just like inevitable in an indictment this large. Mm-hmm. So it shows some the weaknesses of RICO inherently. And then two, it's showing what a pure politically motivated prosecution looks like. Um, and the issue with RICO, and I have many issues with RICO, but the issue with RICO is RICO requires prosecutors to do something that legally they really shouldn't be doing, which is build a story. So, you know, prosecutors mm. should be looking at evidence. They should be asking the judge and jury to apply um, the fact of the evidence. But in RICO cases, because you have to show a large, complex, sophisticated criminal organization, you really have to show how all the pieces fit together and how every party is intertwined. Mm-hmm. And that type of storytelling frequently goes far beyond the facts and far beyond the law.
0: But at the end of the day, if the case is made, if the case is solid, then a RICO case is effective for a district attorney, right?
1: So RICO cases are always effective for district attorneys, and that's why you see them used so often, especially by politically motivated district attorneys. And I will say, I don't have the facts right at my fingers, but it's something as high as one out of five uh, district attorneys goes on to serve um, additional years as an elected official. Many, many district attorneys in this country are deeply politically motivated. And this is the thing about RICO. One, it's a big net. You, ca- you catch a lot of fish when you have a RICO charge. Two, every single person that's indicted is looking at very serious prison time. Mm. Three, you've isolated every single person that you've indicted from their entire social network. You can no longer talk to your friends. You can no longer rely on your family. You're under enormous financial strain. Mm. And so you really become isolated. And then the last element of RICO is that they then put tremendous pressure on you to turn and cooperate with the state. Mm. And so the reason that the state always wins is because you are isolated, you are fearful, you are being crushed by the power of the state, you have every incentive to turn. And if enough people turn, even in a situation in which there is very little evidence, if enough people are cooperating, at least a few people can be pushed to plead to the most serious charges, whether in this case it's domestic terrorism or election fraud in the case of Donald Trump. And the thing about that is then the DA, who again is likely politically motivated, can spin it that those people, the ones that do ultimately pay the ultimate price, that those are the masterminds. And it might not even be true, right? But at the end of the day, the DA can say, These people, the people we ended up having the most evidence about, um, those were the masterminds. And frequently, those aren't the masterminds, but they're a little bit in charge of the press and the story and the spin. And they are very motivated to convince the public that they have, in fact, collapsed this organization and put the most culpable people in prison, even if that's not true. And I will say one, one last thing is that the thing about RICO indictments is a little bit you don't know what cards you're holding because you... You indict so many people and you're still building your case after you indict, which isn't typical in criminal cases, but a little bit you win when anyone is sort of sufficiently crushed by the system as to plead guilty or as to go to trial and be found guilty by a jury.
0: All right. So I want to uh, talk about the intimidation effect and uh, kind of get a temperature of the movement uh, after these RICO indictments dropped yesterday. Give me just a couple seconds here to take a quick break. We'll come back. Alex Joseph joining us, former state federal prosecutor, giving us her take on the RICO indictments that Attorney General Chris Carr dropped yesterday on the Stop Cop City movement. You're listening to The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, radio.com or wherever you podcast. We're back with Alex Joseph, frequent guest of the show, and thank you so much for that. Also, uh, former state federal prosecutor and one of the volunteers on the Cop City Vote movement. Uh, We know that the petition drive is sort of in this state of flux right now. More than 100, what would you say, 110,000 signatures ready to be dropped on somebody's desk, but are, are we still kind of in a wait-and-see attitude as to how those are going to be vetted?
1: Yes, we're still gathering signatures, and there was a recent stay issued by the 11th Circuit that does impact impact the registration, verification process. But you are correct that we've gathered over 100,000, 110,000 signatures, and we will be submitting those to the city.
0: Okay. What is the impact of Chris Carr's indictments yesterday? Uh, this feels a little bit like an intimidation-like measure. Does this create some pause on those in the movement? Does it make some folks a little more leery to to donate or volunteer their time?
1: I think that, I want to be clear, I've been in the types of rooms where large Indictments like this, indictments that have um, political pressure, indictments that have press scrutiny, public scrutiny are written and discussed. So Mm. I want to be clear that this is a process that I'm sure Chris Carr has been working on this for months and months. And I, so I don't want to overstate. the fact that he has, that this has been in the works for months however mm-hmm. i do think it is not an accident that this was re- that the indictment was dropped and the press conference was had the very week that construction was supposed to start back up on the cop city facility the the atlanta public training safety center whatever they're calling it mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. And I think that Chris Carr is aware of the fact that there is a referendum effort in Atlanta to stop Cop City and that over 100,000 people have signed the petition to put it on the ballot. And I do think that part of this was a reminder that you know, this is not a mainstream movement. That's that's what Chris Carr wants to say. This isn't a mainstream movement. This isn't something that's palatable. This isn't something that like a couch potato like me would get involved in. And so now is the time to remind people that this is a terrorist organization. Um, I also saw a really relevant tweet from a public defender who was like, I have clients, who have been sitting in jail for over two years who haven't been indicted, why did this case get indicted so quickly? And it got indicted so quickly because Chris Carr wants to run for governor and he needs these very, very specific headlines on a very specific time frame. So I just want to highlight the fact that there are several external factors that are contributing to this indictment dropping. And one is to paint the movement like terrorist. Two is to further his political career. And I do think whether it's intended or unintended consequence, it is chilling people's um, desire or willingness to participate in the movement because there's a genuine fear that mm-hmm. you will be caught up in the giant net that is Rico.
0: It has to help, too, that he has local elected Democratic officials on his side in this case.
1: Right. Cop City is no longer really a Democrat or Republican issue. It is a Democratic administration, although I guess I should say that the um, the city council members, I believe, run in non nonpartisan races. But in general, Atlanta is a Democratic stronghold, sure. and here we have a facility that is being very much opposed by progressives who are being vilified. Uh, but what I would say to that is I don't want people listening to forget that Governor Kemp strongly supports the construction of the training center. And in many ways, I think that he is the person behind the scenes pulling the strings and uh, positioning for this thing, this monstrosity to be built. Um, And I will say that, you know, I am a frequent guest on this show. And since I last appeared, uh, Dunwoody has announced that they're building their own police training center. Henry County has announced that they're building their own training center. And then not in Georgia, but Baltimore just announced that they're building a training center that is over $300 million. So part of why this is being rolled out in Atlanta and fought for so hard is Politicians across the country want their own cop cities because cop cities are a way, an easy way for politicians to assure the public that, look, I care about public safety. And they're not about public safety. Frankly, I think they're much more about municipal bonds. Um, but if they can have it built in Democratic Atlanta, they can have it built in a place with a black mayor and a black city council, then they think they can roll it out anywhere. And so the fact that Atlanta is a Democratic stronghold is essential to their strategy.
0: But doesn't the fact that Dunwoody or did you mention, was it Henry County? Doesn't that actually fly in the face of the argument that they were having this facility built here uh, in DeKalb County in the first place, that we were going to have other municipalities, nearby municipalities who were going to be able to use it as well?
1: Right. I mean, Fulton County, which Metro Atlanta is majority in Fulton County, is building their own training center because Atlanta was charging them too high a price to use their facility. So um, this is not going to be a facility that trains officers statewide or even, you know, nationally. This is going to be a facility that trains Atlanta officers and then is rolled out. And many and even larger cop stations are going to be built all over the country.
0: Uh, again, the lead story today, we have another inmate fatality inside the Fulton County Jail. It, it, this just smacks of a misappropriation of funds, both by Fulton County, I guess, in some respects, and Atlanta, the city of Atlanta, who is inextricably tied to the Fulton County Jail mess as well. There's a lot of money going to this public safety training facility in DeKalb County that could be allocated elsewhere and be saving lives, wouldn't you think?
1: Right. So Atlanta is one of the most surveilled cities in the country, if not the world. One in 13 adults in Georgia is under some sort of state supervision. So in prison, in jail, under parole supervision, under probation supervision, one in 13 adults. Mm. If that type of police state worked, surveillance, putting people in prison worked, Atlanta would be the safest country or safest city in the world. We know that it doesn't work and we have to look for alternatives, but we are very determined in Atlanta to invest in policing. And I will say that Atlanta police get over 40% of our budget and we know it doesn't work, but we just continue to make the same mistake over and over again. And the Cop City movement is so aggressively not about Cop City. It is about a new way of doing things, investing in social safety nets and investing outside of policing. And in some ways, that's why it's so contentious, because you're fighting between the way it's always been done, the Atlanta mm-hmm, way, mm-hmm. and a new way of doing business, a way of, you know, looking after each other, of building a more equitable world, a world where there's less poverty, less income inequality. So, yes.
0: Yeah, this this fight feels a, a bit of a microcosm of sorts, although, as you mentioned, Mentioned before, it's it's growing. It's Dunwoody. It's Henry County. It's Baltimore. It's uh, you know many other cities and counties across the country who are who are fighting this battle as well to find different ways to combat crime. Heaven forbid we invest in people and in educations and <laughs> job opportunities, et cetera, and so on. Mental health, even which we know is uh, you know crucial in in dealing with those who are incarcerated. Some two thirds. Uh, from uh, a guest we had last week, but uh, that's another story for another day. Alex Joseph, uh, former state federal prosecutor. Thank you for joining us on the Ron Show and discussing uh, the RICO cases and what's latest in the movement.
1: Great, right, Thanks so much.
0: Thank you, ma'am. Okay. When thank we come you. back again, the breaking story from this afternoon, a 10th fatality from the Fulton County jail. Chandra Delmore, age 24, found responsive during a routine check over the weekend. He passed away, apparently, Sunday at Grady Hospital. We're just finding that out. We'll get to that story when we return here on The Ron Show, the America One Radio app, America1Radio.com or wherever you podcast.
1: This is The Ron Show on America One Radio.
0: Joseph Papp at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution with the story that we were alluding to at the start of the show today. Another Fulton County inmate has been found, well, found unresponsive days ago in the Fulton County Jail. He apparently died uh, days after being found unresponsive, and we're just now finding that out. Uh, The story reads, a Fulton County inmate died Sunday at Grady Memorial Hospital. It is Wednesday afternoon, y'all. Died Sunday at Grady Memorial Hospital, days after being found unresponsive in his cell. Ten inmates in the custody of the Fulton County Sheriff's Office have died this year and six in the past five weeks. His name was Chandre Delmore. He was 24 years of age, and he was found unresponsive during a routine check by detention officers around 8.15 last Thursday night. Uh, Jail staff performed life-saving measures until medical staff arrived. According to the sheriff's office, he was taken to Grady, where he remained unresponsive and eventually passed on Sunday. Uh, Chandra Delmore had been arrested in April. It is September. April. By APD on charges of Burglary obstruction is being held on a $2,500 bond on the burglary charge and a signature charge on the obstruction charge. Fulton County Medical Examiner will conduct an autopsy. APD will conduct a death investigation. The talk of a new Fulton County jail, and we don't know that a facility would even solve these problems. I mean, it just has to be said. It has to be noted. We don't know that a new facility would solve, undo 10 casualties this calendar year so far if it were available. But the cost of a new Fulton County Jail facility, $1.6 billion to $2 billion. I'm going to play around with some math a little bit here, okay? Just, just hang with me here. The city's population, uh, according to 2021 data, 496,461. 21.6% of that population lives in poverty. That would be around 107,227 Atlanta residents. If you split, (laughs) if you split that $2 billion amongst just those who are deemed to be living in poverty in the city of Atlanta, just split that $2 billion amongst 107,227 people. That would mean each individual would have $18,652.02 additionally in their pocket. Think if that were a mother and her child, a mother and her children, a family of four living in poverty, and imagine what kind of impact that kind of money just given to them in some form, whether it be housing vouchers, food vouchers, tuition assistance, tuition forgiveness. What sort of impact would that have on crime? Because we all know, and the, 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 the pro-police folks really just don't want to help connect the dots. We know that crime tends to exist where opportunities don't either seem to or don't at all exist. We want to feed the ibuprofen to alleviate the temporary pain instead of finding the source of the pain and eradicating what's causing it. It's good for the ibuprofen makers, right? I mean, Motrin. Motrin does really well (laughs) when systemically all you want to do is address even just temporarily the pain versus the cause of the pain. Now, I am not at all suggesting, by the way, that we just say, all right, instead of a new Fulton County jail, we take that $2 billion and split it amongst those who are living at or below the poverty line in the city of Atlanta. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, though, is We have this thirst for investing in things that don't really solve problems. What's a new Fulton County jail going to do to solve the problems they're obviously dealing with when it comes to keeping the incarcerated alive? Why is someone on a $2,500 burglary bond from April even still in the facility? That's sad. You know, I follow on Twitter J.C. Bradbury, who is an economist. He's a Kennesaw State professor. And he has a bug. Like it, 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 He's totally triggered, and I'm grateful for it. Totally triggered by government entities coughing up taxpayer dollars and or tax incentives or both so that billionaire franchise owners, the NHL, NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, et cetera, and so on, can get venues built so they can attract millionaire athletes and charge us exorbitant ticket fees, parking fees, concession fees, and, oh, by the way, starve our municipalities and counties of needed tax base. Never mind the use of police for traffic control, the need for connectivity when it comes to our infrastructure, the power grid, water, sewage. I I follow him because, well, first of all, I'm a sports junkie. I'm also a bit of a nerd when it comes to stadium and arena design. Like, I'm just fascinated by this stuff. But I'm also kind of blown away at how much money gets spent on these things so that billionaires who have plenty of money and their franchises who make plenty of money in leagues that make way plenty money, instead of investing into these venues... Look to municipalities, counties and states even, to have these venues built and or updated so that they can keep pace with the other billionaires in their little consortium, league. And, well, I understand the need for modern jail facilities. I really do. And I don't know how this would have prevented any of the 10 deaths inside the Fulton County Jail. I'm just kind of fascinated that we're willing to throw gobs of money. I mean, we're we're thinking $1.62 billion. Mercedes-Benz Stadium cost about that. And there was a little political pushback on that. Not much. And remember, we had a perfectly fine dome stadium right next door to it before we imploded it. Could it have used some updating? I mean, sure, again, to air quote, keep pace with the other billionaires. The Georgia Dome was a nice facility. If we'd have boxed it up and sent it to New Orleans, they'd have gladly accepted it. And don't get me wrong, I like Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I like SoFi Stadium in LA better. I like the one in Minneapolis better. I just think they're nicer designs. The one Tennessee's going to get, by the way, on the back of taxpayer dollars, that looks really nice too. I like Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I just don't like that Hundreds of millions of city dollars went to it. When we have schools that are struggling, we have streets that can barely be kept drivable. (laughs) We have homeless folks all over the city who need care, mental wellness, physical wellness, rehabilitation. Fulton County needs a new jail. Okay, I get it. 1.6 billion, 2 billion, I get that. What, what what we have now is obviously not good enough. And again, I don't know that a new facility prevents these deaths. How many or any? But I know that we, we tend to misallocate our resources, and I don't understand why we, the people, don't understand that those resources are being misallocated. At the federal level, we spend so much more than the rest of the world combined for our military. And most of the rest of the world would consider themselves allies of ours, and we consider allies of theirs. So who who are we spending this for and what on? You come to the state and the local level, we're going to spend, what was it, 40% of our budget in the city on police and in Fulton County now, we want to spend $17 million for a police training facility, and now we need a $1.6 to $2 billion Fulton County jail. The city wants to build a $90 to $120 million public training facility as well, outside the county and outside the city limits, but that's another. We're spending all this money on all these things that aren't really solving anything. But when you start to push back on this notion that we got to spend this money on these things. And you start to get some traction, referendums, ballot initiatives, the system, those who continue to perpetuate this misallocation of resources, well, they work their asses off to deny you the opportunity to actually vote on said misallocation. They want you to vote by proxy to put someone else or themselves in the seat, knowing full well that once that person is in the seat, or enough people who are in those seats can be, will be, manipulated by a perpetuation of a system that continues to misallocate. Attorney Devin Franklin was on Democracy Now! early today, and he actually spoke to the RICO charges. And I want you to hear what he had to
1: say. Uh, as a public defender in Fulton County, I never had a case that this was this large or witnessed a case that was this large. Um, I think that when we look at the number of people that were accused and we look at the allegations that are included in the indictment, what we see are a wide variety of activities that are lawful, that are being deemed to be criminal. And um, that includes things such as passing out flyers, right? Um, a really clear example of First Amendment, um, the exercise of First Amendment Amendment rights. Um, We see that uh, organizations that were bailing people out for protests um, or conducting business in otherwise lawful manners um, have been deemed to be part of some ominous um, infrastructure. um, And it's just not accurate. Um, This is really clearly a political prosecution.
0: Attorney General Chris Carr is probably going to run for governor. We know Burt Jones is going to run for governor. Both of those conservatives, both of them pro-police, pro-public safety training facility. Andre Dickens is not a Republican. If I had to guess, no one on Atlanta City Council is. Well, no, no, I don't think any... No, no, I'm going to stick with that. I don't think anybody on Atlanta City Council is. And yet, this very situation is a divide-and-conquer tactic. and. They got some fish reeled in, flopping in the boat, and participating in this division tactic. Because I'm going to tell you, and I think I've said this before, the activists that are working to put Cop City just on the ballot, that the city is doing all it can to keep off the ballot, and why? Those same activists are going to be called upon a year from now to be door-knocking for votes for the Democratic Party. What do you think they're going to do when asked? Listen, going to jail shouldn't be fun. It should not be club med. It should not be a spy. It should not be what Martha Stewart went to, or what I'm sure Donald Trump would be cordoned off into were he convicted. It shouldn't be a death sentence, however. and. Well I would be the first to say anybody who throws Molotov cocktails and destroys public or other folks private property deserve whatever sanction or fine or time spent in jail is coming to them folks who just fundraise for bail funds folks who hand out flyers folks who peaceably protest, that's, that's, not, that's not something that should be wrapped up in a RICO charge. That movement is telling you, telling me, telling them that the land they want to use can be used for something better. And I'm telling you that the money they want to use can be used for something way better. Can we not pay our law enforcement officers better? Can we not pay our prison officials better? Can we not hire more folks to work in the Fulton County Jail to prevent these sort of unfortunate situations? Ten deaths. I sort of joked a couple weeks ago, we're on pace for 12. We're on pace to eclipse that in the calendar year 2023. And before you just brush these dead folks off as just thug criminals, I want to remind you what founder and CEO of the New Disabled South, Dom Kelly, said last Thursday on this show. We know that uh, two thirds of state and federal prison populations uh, are disabled. The vast majority of them are black and brown men, um, and most of them have mental illness or mental health disabilities, um, or cognitive disabilities. Shouldn't we be devoting some eye-popping money at combating that? Final segment of the Ron Show for Wednesday, and indulge me if you will. You know I'm a bit of a history junkie, and there's a lot of history that I feel cheated out of. Like we weren't taught this stuff in public school. And honestly, there was an entire like curriculum year, I want to say, maybe even two or three in middle school and high school for state history. And I'm really kind of pissed that I wasn't taught this. But I actually think that That was by design from folks who chose what was going to be in textbooks back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and into the 90s in the South. The South has always been controlled by conservatives. Whether they were conservative in the Democratic Party or Republican Party, they were conservatives. Anthony Michael Kreese is a law professor at Georgia State University and a pretty handsome fellow. He is also frequently a guest on uh, most of the cable networks of any repute whatsoever, I should say, when it comes to political matters, legal matters in the state of Georgia. So you may have heard the name or seen the face. It's a nice face, right? Anyway, he tweeted something today that I never knew about, and I'm going to share this with you. 155 years ago this week, Georgia's General Assembly began the process of expelling all black members from the Georgia House of Representatives and the following week from the Georgia Senate, setting up a constitutional crisis and wave of violence across the state. After Georgia adopted a constitution in 1868, of course, after the Civil War, It held elections in that spring for lawmakers. With newly freed men able to vote, Georgia elected Republican Rufus Bullock as governor, a Republican majority in the state Senate and a conservative House led by a moderate Republican. That summer, white state legislators called to expel all of the nearly three dozen black men elected to the legislature, arguing that the Georgia Constitution didn't safeguard their right to hold office. In the first week of September, the House removed black members. The Senate followed. As the fall of 1868 elections came close, Republicans used the expulsions to rally support for their slate. Violence erupted to quash the Republican Party, notably in Camilla, where a GOP rally turned deadly. Something he wrote about in a New York Times piece that I'll include in today's show notes at Ronshowetl.com. The political chaos soon brought Georgia back under military reconstruction and through another protracted battle for a second readmission to the Union. In 1869, the Georgia Supreme Court in White v. Georgia ruled in favor of black lawmakers. Despite the Supreme Court of Georgia ruling that state law did not forbid black elected office holders, Georgia's reconstruction was a total failure. A multiracial coalition never had the opportunity to work in the state, and by 1872, the state was under total redeemer control. This failure spread across the South. Places like Louisiana and South Carolina that held promise failed to sustain democratic progress because of political violence. The same fate was met in places like Virginia and North Carolina. Wilmington riots come to mind that had some success in the late 19th century. There is uh, an organization called the Original 33 that advocates on behalf of remembering those original 33 legislators in the state of Georgia. And there will be events held, uh, let's see, what is today? uh, Friday and Saturday. That include a candlelight vigil in downtown Greensboro, Georgia, uh, Friday night at 530 and a tribute dinner Saturday night, uh, September 9th at downtown Greensboro at 4 p.m. And it's held in collaboration, again, with the Original 33. Uh, You've got information at Original33.com and with the Greene County African American Museum. So this organization, the Original 33 and part of the African American Museum in uh, Greene County, is spearheaded by a lovely lady by the name of Mamie Hilton. She's a social entrepreneur, organizer, educator, and historian who has committed her life to honoring her ancestors by establishing a world in which their descendants, African Americans, in and around Greene County, Georgia, can flourish. And I'm excited to tell you that she's going to be on the show tomorrow, and I'm sure she's going to be an absolute delight. So we're going to talk about those events, we're going to talk about the original 33, and we're going to talk about... Why the hell there's no mention of the original 33 or all that they went through to even be legislators in the state of Georgia just after the Civil War. Why their plight isn't in a Georgia history textbook that I can recall. And bet it's not in one now. It's because of Anthony Michael Kreese tweet, thanks buddy, that I even did a little digging and found that one of the original 33 served from my home county, Columbia County. Romulus Moore is his name, and I learned a lot about Romulus Moore when I decided to Google him. For example, I read that the future Reverend Romulus Moore was actually a wild young man until 1860 when he met and married Miss Mary Eleanor Horton, and that always the way a Christian woman. Once married, he changed his ways. Good on him, right? Come to find out that while he actually served in my home county of Columbia County, Columbia County was a lot larger back then and encompassed a good bit, or I believe all of McDuffie County. So he was actually from Deering, Georgia, which is in McDuffie County. So while he didn't technically represent the county I grew up in, he was at the time from Columbia County. Romulus Moore was a pioneer of the civil rights movement and among the leaders of the African Baptist Church that started the Augusta Institute, which became Morehouse College, the Spelman Institute, which became Spelman College, and Atlanta University. Now, students who attend those schools may learn a good bit about Romulus Moore, but I, a public school product of Columbia County's public school system, never once heard the name Romulus Moore there are to my knowledge no streets or buildings that bear his name in Columbia or McDuffie County that I can find and that's a shame but there's a John C Calhoun Expressway that takes you right into downtown Augusta bisecting the Harrisburg mostly black community all right that'll do it for today looking forward to talking with Mamie Hillman tomorrow First on America One Radio from 5 to 6 p.m. And then afterwards, wherever you podcast. You can get more at runshowatl.com. Have a great Wednesday. We'll see you Thursday.